0: So I got a weird text earlier this week from Christy Engel who said, out of nowhere, one, period, was Noah an albino, two, period, Was Mary Magdalene a prostitute? And I have to tell you, I love these sorts of uh, text messages that are devoid of any context whatsoever that allow me to tap into the biblical nerd that I am and answer some of these questions, or at least engage them. Uh, And just so you know, number two... No, uh, there, there's nothing in the text to suggest that. Some people conflate stories about Mary Magdalene and other stories about sinful women, um, although, even in those texts, the sin of the woman is not named. Uh, like earlier in uh, our, our time today, we did a kid video about the sinful woman in Luke 7. It doesn't say what her sin is, but many people have gone on to say it's some sort of immorality that may have caused the ire of the guests at the dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house, okay? But we we don't know anything about Mary Magdalene and her, her sinfulness and what it may or may uh, not have been, because that's not part of the text, okay? The first question though is the one that really caused me to raise my eyebrows. Was Noah an albino? I mean, that just is a strange question, uh, but really a fascinating one. And I said, okay, you're gonna have to help me out with this first question, what's the context? And then she gave me a screenshot from a Facebook conversation where someone was uh, sounding off in the comments about how Noah was an albino. and, And that's found in, the book of First Enoch. Okay, now, First Enoch is part of a collection of texts that are called the pseudepigrapha. Uh, Those texts have authors that use names of other people, like a pseudonym, uh, but they're names of people that, that we know. Like, we know biblical Enoch, and we know about his story, and the author is kind of taking on that persona to write this book. It's clearly not Enoch. It's much later Um, But within this story, which is largely a retelling of some of the things within Genesis, one of the pieces of interpretation has to do with Noah. So I say to her, to Christy, I say, well, within the Jewish interpretive tradition, a lot of times uh, these authors will kind of attach themselves to a tidbit in the Old Testament, and exploit it, and expand it, and tease it out. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was something in the Bible uh, that became the springboard for the author of First Enoch to hypothesize about the skin condition of Noah. And here is what I found upon my later research. This is actually the case because in Genesis five, twenty-eight and twenty-nine, it says when Lamech had lived 182 years, he became the father of a son and called his name Noah, saying, this one shall comfort us from our deeds and from the toil of our hands, from the soil which the Lord has cursed. So clearly, then, Noah is an albino. No. Um, based on this text, people began to wonder, well, what was so special about Noah as an infant that would have caused Lamech to say he's got a special task and will uh, complete um, a, a special calling with regard to the people of God. And these interpreters began to flesh out. Ho, oh, see what I did there? They began to flesh out a story about Noah. So in first Enoch it says this: His body was white like snow and red like the flower of the rose and the hair of his head white like wool. And his father Lamech was afraid of him and fled and went to his father Methuselah and said to him, I have begotten a strange son. He's not like a man, but is like the children of the angels of heaven. Okay, so they're looking at Genesis 5 and and beginning to ask a lot of questions about Genesis 5 that lead to this strange story of Noah being an albino, having a skin condition. Now, I got all that from uh, Traditions of the Bible by James Kugel, who was a longtime professor at... Harvard University, maybe taught at the Divinity School as well, and then eventually ended up at Hebrew uh, University in in Jerusalem. Now, the reason why I'm talking about all of this is because I really got hung up in our study of Habakkuk on a piece of Jewish interpretation that was um, rooted within the story of Habakkuk. Now, just for a little bit of background here, we have within Habakkuk, we have this dialogue between the prophet and God. In the very beginning verses of Habakkuk, remember, um, it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing? This might come into play a little bit here. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack. The Torah becomes slack. And justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. Now, this is the introductory Uh, piece of this conversation. Habakkuk and God going back and forth in the first couple of chapters of this really small book that's wedged in a larger collection that scholars refer to as the Book of the Twelve. These are the Minor Prophets, which is an unfortunate name because it doesn't mean that their role... Is minor. It really means that the books that they have written are smaller than the major prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But there's really nothing minor about uh, the prophecies of these folks in the book of the Twelve. But in Habakkuk, we have this this back and forth, and remember, it's rooted in a geopolitical uh, circumstance that is informing. Habakkuk. We don't know exactly what that is, but we do know that the Assyrian Empire is on the decline. We know that they are in uh, an alliance with Egypt, who at the time is sort of serving as uh, the overseers of Judah and the kingdom and the kings and uh, the center of worship and all things Judah, like they are subservient to Egypt, who is in control of this strip of land, even though they are in an alliance with Syria. But this is beginning to tank because of the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire at the uh, leadership of a man named Nabopolassar. Now, this is all happening around 625 BC through 605-ish BC. 605 BC is an important date because that's when Babylon destroys Assyria and Egypt at what is called the Battle of Carchemish. And at this time, the political uh, landscape within Judah is in complete turmoil. Um, Their their King Josiah has died. Uh, There's sort of this internal divide within uh, the kingdom. There's a, a ruler who is on the throne for three months before he is assassinated Egypt installs a puppet king that is to do uh, Egypt's bidding while in power. There's all sorts of things that are going on that lead Habakkuk the prophet to say, violence, injustice, God, you are not doing anything which kicks off this dialogue. So last week we wanted to talk about how it's important for us in the midst of national unrest and our own individual anxieties to continue the conversation with God, to continue the dialogue, to be involved in the work of justice. Yes, but also to include God through our prayers and through our laments and through our petitions. That sometimes, a lot of times, actually. Come on behalf of other people. And in this moment, there are a few different groups that we are petitioning for as a community. And within, uh, for some individuals, they look different. But in this moment, uh, we can think of a handful of different. Uh, people that we are petitioning for, that there would be racial equity in our country, that there would be justice in uh, some of these high-profile cases that, that we see before us that have involved the death of uh, black and brown citizens, that there might be uh peace and security for for wives of uh, law enforcement officers that are our own, that are people that we love and that we care for. And there's this division within our country where everything is so polarized that you basically have to create a laundry list of things that you support and that you are for. With every post and every statement that you make, at the uh, potential expense of hurting people who are taking up sides and it's becoming exhausting where we are attempting to petition for many different things and many different purposes and many different forms of injustice within our world. And we can identify with Habakkuk, but the tendency for us is to leave God out out of it and to do all the work ourselves or completely shut down everyone else who disagrees with anything that we say at any moment on any subject. And we are becoming a people uh, devoid of nuance and devoid of conversation, perhaps even in our relationship with God. Does that make sense? So we have Habakkuk who is going back and forth with God, starting off with a massive petition, a massive lament that within his moment, everything has gone to crap and God seems to be silent and he is calling God to task. Now, remember last week we talked about how sometimes the response of God is lackluster or just really confusing or I think for most of us just kind of silent, uh, especially within our ecclesial tradition. Um, I, I don't think that we have a lot of people that that hear from God. We have a lot of people that feel a leading or a, a moving of the Spirit, a prompting of the Spirit, but I think that we have less people who would say, I heard from God today and this is what God said. Uh, But still, sometimes the responses that we feel God is offering don't make sense. Or they are just couched in silence. So Habakkuk is starting this dialogue and God comes back in verse 5 and says, Look at the nations and see. Be astonished, be astounded, for the work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Now it's interesting as well that God here is not just talking to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is not just raising his own lament. Habakkuk is talking for a larger group of people and God is responding to not you singular Habakkuk, but you plural, all of the people that Habakkuk is representing. But God is saying, you're not even going to believe what I tell you because I'm rousing up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the people who are right here ready to strike. They are a fierce and impetuous nation. They march through the breadth of the earth. They seize dwellings, not their own, dread and fearsome. Are they? Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge, their horsemen come from far away. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Fly like an eagle. Did you get there? I I did. As soon as that came out of my mouth, I went right there to the Steve Miller Band. I'm 97% sure. Google that. They they all come for violence, it says, with faces pressing forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And of rulers, they make sport. They laugh at every fortress and heap up earth to take it. Sort of this, this image of a siege, uh, siege warfare, right? So you have a city that has uh, large walls and then the Assyrians popularized this where they would just build up these ramps, these siege ramps, where they would take their siege engines. Sorry for all of the... Uh, uses of the word siege. Uh, but they would kind of get into the city this way by just throwing a bunch of rocks and brick and and sand and dust and creating this big ramp. This is this is uh, evidence in a lot of archaeological sites where you can still see the, the evidence of siege warfare and how, how this was happening. It says then they sweep by like the wind, they transgress and become uh, guilty. Their own might is their God. This verse here is really difficult to translate, but basically you have Habakkuk saying, violence, injustice, all of these things. The Torah is ineffective. What is happening in the geopolitical landscape? We don't know what to do. God, you're not saying anything. The dialogue's not going anywhere, but we must petition for the things that we see in our community that need your help, that need your attention, and God remains silent until God shows up and says, ooh, I've got something. I'm rousing the the enemy, the empire, to come here and to destroy who we're not even necessarily sure, but Habakkuk wants to take a step back and says, what? This doesn't make any sense. That was my Josh Revel uh, uh, impersonation from last week. What? Who actually, he also texted me and said, is that what I look like? Yeah. Uh, so Habakkuk says, I I what? Why would you do this? This is inconsistent with your character. You can't even look upon violence, but yet you are empowering this, this empire to come in and to destroy. God, it doesn't make any sense. And then Habakkuk goes into this long... Uh, response to God. Are you not from of old, he says. O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, you shall not die. O oh Lord, you have marked them for for judgment. And you, O oh Rock, you have established them for, for punishment. Your eyes, they're too pure to behold evil. You cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous? Why are you uh, bringing in Babylon to do your bidding here, God? It doesn't make any sense. And then after... um sort of talking through some of this and actually blaming God for, for some of this, Habakkuk gets to a place in the first verse of chapter 2. He says, I will stand at my watchpost and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me, what God will say to me, and what God will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk responds to the word that God has given him that doesn't seem to make any sense. And Habakkuk has pushed back against this word, and now it says that Habakkuk will stand at the watchpost, will station himself on the rampart. And this is where I have kind of... Um, fallen into a piece of Jewish interpretation. Now, this is an ancient Jewish interpretation. This is actually modern Jewish interpretation that I think it's fair to say would still be uh, informed by some of the practices of, of ancient uh, rabbis in, in the past. This is um, a, a, uh, a, a rabbi who is teaching on this specific passage and sort of similarly to uh, what we saw in First Enoch with this hook in Genesis. They are finding a hook in Habakkuk for a much more modern understanding of what this looks like, this, this standing on the watch post, this stationing on the rampart. And I think it has some, some interesting uh, connections with our specific moment in time. So this is a reading from Arlene Goldstein Berger uh, who who comes back and, and says, based on this verse, I will stand my watch and station myself on the ramparts she says this this image evoked for me is that of women waiting on the parapets of their homes for their loved one to return from sea. they wait and wonder if." when and how. She goes on to say, and there might be uh, some pushback here, but just, uh, just cut through that and get to the heart of what she's saying. She says, women are trained to wait. We wait to grow up when we are young, to fall in love, to find out or decide if children are in our future, to be pregnant or to miscarry, and to deal with both. As mothers, we wait for our children to return when they go out. As lovers, we wait for our loved ones. She talks about mothers who send their kids to school and wait for them to come home, which takes on all sorts of new resonances in this age with uh, school violence being such an uh, integral is not the right word, but a consistent partner to the education system is this ongoing and looming concern that something might happen, either kids being violent with other kids or, God forbid, some form of violence from outside of the walls going into the walls of the school. And for many moms, this is something where your waiting has taken on new levels of anxiety, and she begins to talk about all sorts of different situations. And she concludes with this, again, based on the text from Habakkuk, uh, I will stand at my watch post. I will station myself on the rampart. I will wait. I will watch. I will... I will um, uh, be patient for the word of God to, to come back to me. And she concludes with this. She says, So we all stand our watch over those we love with patience and strength, wondering if they will be safe or if they will be victims of violence. And we all wait for God's answer to Habakkuk's question, ad Adonai, which translates, how long? Lord, we all stand our watch over those we love. Now, clearly, uh, this is sort of using Habakkuk as a springboard for some other ideas that are germane to this idea of waiting. Habakkuk, though, is also uh, engaged within the waiting for violence to be ended, for justice to be served, for injustice to be demolished. Uh, Habakkuk is not emotionally detached from the people that he is petitioning for. And in many ways, we can liken that sort of weightiness, his his waiting for God to respond, for God to act, for God to do something, for the violence in the world to go away, for the injustice in the world to go away, for God not to do something that is inconsistent with God's character, namely bringing a world empire and power to come in to judge, namely using the wicked to judge the wicked. This is not something that sits well with Habakkuk. So Habakkuk will stand at his post. Coast and wait. And for Arlene uh, Goldsteinberger, she says, We are all waiting and watching over those that we love. We are all petitioning God to be present, for God to keep violence at bay. We are all petitioning that justice would roll down like streams of living water, that that injustice would be abolished and demolished and completely separate from what we are doing. We are all standing on the watch post. We are all stationing ourselves on the ramparts and we are crying out. And now this looks different for different people and I want you to hear me. For some people, what this looks like is they are waiting for their children to come home. I was at the unveiling of the Black Lives Matter Boulevard sign uh, on Friday. This is the day that I'm recording it on Juneteenth, a day that's supposed to symbolize freedom and equality. And while that ceremony was beautiful and powerful, um, and and the, the, the speech that was given by Julia was was moving and it was honest and it was authentic. And the people that were there were diverse and people were all seemingly to be on board. Um, and then they invited a gentleman from the community who's done a ton of work uh, to, to get us beyond the, these racial barriers, came up to say, this is a good moment, but there is more work to do because we still have black and brown moms who stand on the watch post and station themselves on the ramparts waiting for God to to ensure that violence will not befall their child. We also have And I've said this before, and I want to be really clear here. We also have wives and spouses of law enforcement officers who are waiting, who are on the watch post, who are stationing themselves on the ramparts and calling out to God that violence would not befall their spouse, the father to their children, the mother to their children, for the parents of law enforcement officers that they too would not see their their children taken by violence. I don't want you to, to mishear me or to misunderstand me. When we petition, it includes so many people because our world is so messed up that when we say violence and when we say injustice, that can include so many things. We all stand watch over those we love with patience and strength, wondering if they will be safe or if they will be victims to violence. And we all say, Adana Adonai. How long will this go on? If we are only petitioning for one we are not doing our job if we are only singularly focused on one we are not doing our job as followers of jesus we should decry injustice at every level in every place where it finds residence in every systemic uh political and even national or federal stronghold that is maintaining injustice, we should be crying out that it is over and abolished. And here we sit on Juneteenth, a day when we celebrate freedom, and we don't have it. It's not experienced by all in the same way. And TRP, I want you to hear this. We all stand watch over those we love. And we all, with patience and strength, wonder if they will be safe or if they'll be victims. And we all cry out, Ad ana Adonai, how long, how long? As a minister, this has been ongoing. For, for my seven years, And I know that it's been ongoing for certain ministers 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or 60 years. It's ongoing. And like Habakkuk, we must stand and wait. We must also petition loudly. We must petition inclusively. We must must petition exhaustively for our black and brown Brothers and sisters, for our friends and family who also may experience violence that is racially motivated or, or anger-driven or, or who knows what else, how long, O oh Lord, we stand and wait and we will not stop petitioning until it's over. I'm not calling for you to be passive I'm not calling for you to be actionless. I'm calling you to direct your anger and your hope to the liberating God who knows suffering more than many of us, who knows also what it's like to stand and watch over those that God loves with patience and strength, not wondering, but understanding and knowing that they were victims of violence. May we petition the liberating God. May we cry out, violence be damned and done. May we cry out, injustice be damned and be done. May we understand that we play an active role in that and may we not limit it. May we not find it exhaustively in this space, but may we broaden it to include all of those who we are called to love. We all stand and watch over those we love with patience and strength, wondering if they will be safe or if they will be victims of violence. And we all wait for God's answer to Habakkuk's question, Ad, Anah, Adonai, how long God Praise God